Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Rachel Louise Snyder, an associate professor of literature at American University and the author of Fugitive Denim, What We've Lost is Nothing, and the newly released No Visible Bruises. We speak with Rachel today about her book and experience as a journalist and her coverage of the people, practices, and policies that are definitely portrayed in No Visible Bruises, shining a light on the epidemic of domestic violence and the ways in which our systems have failed to protect victims and survivors. Through her stories of victims, perpetrators, law enforcement, and advocates, Rachel's book debunks the myths that surround domestic violence and conveys an urgency for us as individuals and as a society to reframe how we view and respond to these acts of personal terrorism. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you for having me. So prior to your research for this book, you had worked on and off abroad and spent a great deal of time in Cambodia. What were your views about the issue of domestic violence and intimate partner violence prior to your conversation uh, with Suzanne, the, one of the key characters in the book, for example. Yeah, yeah Suzanne. Um, I really, I had a very casual acquaintance with it, although I wouldn't have said that at the time. At the time, I would have said, as a feminist, oh, it's terrible. It's it's so unfortunate. It's, you know, so, I maybe even would have said, if things are bad enough, they should, they should just leave. I mean, I really, um, I believed all the conventional thought about domestic violence, you know, that that witnesses who don't show up to renew restraining orders are safe again, that um, abusers just snap, that, uh, you know, there's nothing you can do about it, there, that that shelter is an adequate response. I mean, just one after another after another. I believed all of that. And your friend Suzanne um, is actually the sister of a friend of yours, Andre. Yeah, Andre Debuse the third. He he hates the third, but and, yes, and and she appeared to be a catalyst to your research uh, in this area, and was a pivotal character in your decision to write your book, No Visible Bruises. She really was. I mean, I so I've known Andre and his wife for for twenty five years. They're they're godparents to my daughter, and uh, I lived in Cambodia for six years. And when I moved back to America, we began to make annual visits up to see them, and. You know, I'd heard Suzanne's name over the years, but I'd never met her. And we were up in 2010, I think it was. And I was standing on his driveway. We were getting ready to leave. We had driven up there from Washington, D.C. And she pulls up and Andre introduces us. And I'm sort of fresh back from Cambodia, you know, and I ask what she does. And she tells me, you know, that she has begun this high risk team movement to try to predict domestic violence homicide before it happens as a way to prevent it. And I really, my jaw just dropped. I spent that day following her around, going to the farmer's market with her, taking notes. And, you know, I, I've i worked as a journalist for 25 years, but my professional training, if you call it that, <laughs> is in fiction. I studied with Andre at Emerson College, and I have an MFA in fiction. And so in that way, I felt like, you know, domestic violence was a crisis in this country, but it was a crisis that nobody, except those who work in the field, had any, really had any interest in, like, let alone knowledge, just interest. And so I kind of approached the problem like, like a novel, like, you've got to have plot points, you've got to have characters, you've got to have, you know, um, an escalation in plot, like, what are you moving towards? Because I, I believed, I've sort of been proven wrong over the last couple of days, but I believed that nobody wanted to read a book about domestic violence. But if they didn't know they were reading a book about domestic violence and they were just reading a really well-written book, then I could get people to read it. That was my mission. <laughs> so in many ways, your conversation that day ignited this decade-long investigation and inquiry into how we as a society collectively, as you said, contribute to insulating ourselves from these issues and appropriately identifying 
as being adjacent to so many other problems. Um, for example, you, you mentioned that we grapple with as a society domestic violence and its impact on education and economics and mental and physical health and crime and gender and racial equality. So what do you mean by that in terms of how domestic violence is adjacent to all these issues? Well, that was that was one of the stunning things I learned. I mean, I've learned so many stunning things researching this. I just feel like I just felt like I had my mind blown every week when I was researching. And so let's just take one issue, for example, homelessness. More than half the women in this country who are homeless are homeless as a direct result of domestic violence, right? But we look at these social issues in silos, like we compartmentalize them and it doesn't make any sense. Mass shootings is another big one that I've talked about a lot this week. It's not that domestic violence is a predictor. Certainly you can have some overlap between someone who commits mass shooting and someone who is also violent toward his family, his partner, whatever. But that's not what I'm talking about in the book. I'm talking about the fact that mass shootings are domestic violence, that the University of Te- Texas Tower shooting in the 60s, the, the mass shooting that is widely recognized to be the first in this country, began the night before with Charles Whitman's mother and wife. He killed them first before he killed the students. The uh, sniper in D.C. back in 2002, Virginia, D.C., Maryland, terrorizing those you know hundreds of thousands of people, his plan was to, to cover up the eventual murder of his wife. Yes, and in that example, actually, Mildred Muhammad, she has described her relationship with her ex-husband as having been one of complete coercive control where there had been no physical violence at all up until that moment, which as a predictive factor would have kept her off the radar. Right, absolutely. I mean, and I would say two things about that. Like, first of all, that's partly why the book is titled No Visible Bruises, because so much of domestic violence is not about the physicality of it. The physicality of it can can be terrible, but victims will most often say it's the emotional terror. It's the, it's the anticipation of violence that makes it so difficult. There's a reason that research compares the neurological um, state of a domestic violence victim with that of a prisoner of war. I mean, that's you know, a cor- those are those are correlated. And the second thing, what was the question again? I forgot the second <laughs> We're thing. We're talking about Mildred Muhammad and coercive control. Co- oh yeah, coercive control. So you know, the thing is, and this is this is something that I feel like is really about awareness. Podcasts like this and other other media, because you know, in my book, there's a woman that I I write about, Michelle Monson Mosher, and her one of the many things her husband did to her, including isolating her and things that we see in a lot of cases, was to go out and get, he went and got a rattlesnake and brought it home and kept it in a cage and told her, if you get get out of line, I'm going to put this in bed with you. I'm going to put this in the shower with you. Or he would do this. He would take their kids. He'd get, he'd get upset with her and he would take the kids and he'd go camping for a night or he'd go to a motel and she wouldn't know where they were. None of that involves physical abuse at all, but it's totally coercive. And because victims like that will not interact with law enforcement very often, that's where community involvement really gets um, gets to be important. I mean, a lot of women, for example, seek out help from their from their clergy, whatever their various clergy is. So those are people that we need to be training on some of these signs. I think. Well, that that example of using children also existed in Mildred Muhammad's case with the DC sniper, her husband. <laughs> Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. He took her kids for, it was, I think, upward of nine months. She hadn't seen him. She didn't know where he was. And then all of a sudden, you know, he came back and brought, but the whole exercise was a form of intimidation. I don't think I remembered that part of the story. Wow. Wow. In your book, you also shared statistics with regard to the cost of domestic violence. So, for example, um, the American Journal of Preventive Medicine estimates that domestic violence costs $3.6 trillion a year, with two of the, $2 trillion of that um, accountable in medical cost and about $73 billion in criminal justice costs. And that doesn't even include the opportunity costs from the adjacent issues that we had just discussed. Um, I'm wondering, given the 
clear financial benefits if if we were to add these other opportunity costs like you know lost employment and wages um, not just for the the victim and survivor but also for the children future healthcare costs and what are some of the reasons that you think we aren't taking more of a preventive approach towards this crisis given how much of a cost it's taking on society because women are not a priority in this country it's a very simple answer they're not a priority you know, you, you read, I'm sure a lot of your listeners read Rebecca Solnit. I have a little shrine to my house built to Rebecca Solnit. I mean, if I could have one-tenth her brain, you know, she is, she's a gift to, to women and to feminists and um, Rebecca Solnit and Rebecca Tracer. And, you know, I think that, I, I think that the lack of um, attention for domestic violence is directly related to the war on abortion that we're seeing, for example, in this country right now, the rise of um, misogyny that we're seeing right now. You know, domestic violence homicides have risen by 25% since 2017 across this country. For decades, we said three women a day. Now it's four. Well, I have to think that because in 2017, we elected a new president who is just absolutely unabashed about how he feels about women. Uh, still two and a half years in, has not appointed anyone to the Office of Violence Against Women, right? Not appointed an administrator. Um, and the rise of the the real the Me Too movement really gained momentum in 2017. So I think that, you know, this is why we just don't prioritize women and women's health. But here's the crazy thing. This blew my mind. I was listening to a researcher named Jacqueline Campbell, who's really one of the country's foremost researchers in domestic violence uh, outside of Detroit. And she was giving a presentation and she said, when we track the homicides of men, not domestic violence homicides, but just homicides in general of men um, in the states where the homicides of men have gone down, we know that our domestic violence initiatives are are doing better. And I was like, Oh, she must be wrong about like she must have meant women. Like fewer women are being killed. Someone in the audience said said that exactly that. Oh, you mean women? And she said, No, no, no. I mean men. Because we have better resources to 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 help women out of those situations so they don't have to murder their abusive exes in retaliation. And I found that so mind blowing. And I'm like, I'm just saying to everyone all the time, like, men should be involved because they get killed less. Like, they should be our advocates here. When you talk about the misogyny that informs the lack of investment into this issue, would you say it also extends to the media and your peers and journalism and how they cover issues? I mean, there's a lot of criticism now, for example, on the media's reporting of the female candidates for the 2020 election, or lack thereof. Yeah, absolutely. It has been so discouraging to see that we've learned so little. I think maybe if we could just get like retrain all the headline writers, like that might help. (laughs) Like that's a start. Like headlines about domestic violence homicides always have some sort of domestic dispute or the even worse domestic issue. Or, you know, there was a, it really minimizes the the reality of what life is like in these homes. And it's it's really discouraging. You know, the Neiman Foundation actually just this week put out package on best practices for reporters reporting on domestic violence. And I've been telling everyone I know to go to that website, the Neiman Foundation, you know, through Harvard and look at, at best practices. They interviewed me. They interviewed Melissa Jeltsin at HuffPo, who writes a ton about domestic violence. Um, they interviewed the photographer who just did the, that domestic violence portfolio for the New York Times. I forget. I'm forgetting her name right now. But um, because that, that talks at greater length about some of these issues. But I, I absolutely think so. And it's it's just appalling to me that Elizabeth Warren is not the front runner, at least in terms of seriousness of mission and candidacy. Like, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the Neiman Foundation, because I just had a conversation last week with Don Wilcox of Women Count USA, and we were talking about um, media accountability and the and I wasn't aware of any U.S. entity that was setting standards for for media reporting on violence other than um, there's a British organization called Level Up that's been working with. Luke and Ryan Hart, 
uh, and then there's a um, Canadian organization called Equal Press, and those are both very focused on it. So what are your thoughts in terms of the Neiman Foundation reporting guidelines? Do you think that editors should require um, their reporters to abide by them? What are the ways that we can hold the reporters, journalists, and editors accountable? Well, um, first of all, it just came out this week, and I've been on book tour. So I was interviewed for it, but I have not had time to read it. So, um, so I can only sort of half answer that question. I mean, there's a difference between holding someone accountable and educating somebody. So I think, I guess in this case, I would say, and maybe I'm being defensive and I don't mean to be, but I guess in this case, I would say, like, let's put reporters who are covering DV through some training first. And if they fail, then we can hold them accountable. But like at the moment, I, th- I think that just there's just a lack of knowledge and awareness around the complexities and, and particularly the psychological context of of the issue of domestic violence. At the same time, I, I totally agree with you that we should train uh, reporters, but at the same time, people who are actually in the front lines aren't necessarily trained. So judges, lawyers, mental health professionals, they could be working with a family that is undergoing intimate partner violence um, or exposed to it and trauma, and they don't have to have any special requirements. And so it's in a way unfair that there's this burden that we're um, putting onto reporters when the actual people who are working in this issue are potentially getting away with not having to um, be accountable. I know. I think I really think that like specialized DV courts, specialized domestic violence courts are um, I don't I don't know if there's like a trend to create them, but there's more and more of them in, in Washington, D.C., where I live. We actually have two. And it's a requirement that every judge has to cycle in and spend at least one year in DV court. Now, I don't know if there's a, a lot of education that goes on with that, but I know that judges get uh, a sense of the complexities of domestic violence when they spend that year. And I think that's necessary because, you know, as I think you pointed out earlier, domestic violence victims are in the middle of a war zone. They're not, you know, they're not, to use a, a, a term that I used all the time in Cambodia, they're not post-genocide, you know, trying to figure out how they're going to go on. They're trying to figure out how to survive every every day. So that is a really important context. And I think communication across some of these, you know, bureaucracies has got to get better, has got to be improved. A judge has to have access to a record of abuse, and they so often don't. Access and and the training to be able to interpret it properly. Right. Yes, absolutely. One of the central figures in your book that you referred to earlier is Michelle Monson. Um, she and her two children were killed by her husband, Rocky, two months after she had obtained and then retracted her re- restraining order against him. And a good part of your coverage of their story explores if any of the characters in that story, whether it's family members, law enforcement, etc., looking back, missed anything. What are some of the personality traits that Rocky exhibited that they may have missed um, that you, looking back, were able to identify as potentially putting Michelle and her children at risk? Well, I wouldn't frame them as personality traits. I would frame them as behavioral. Maybe, okay. And maybe that's different. I don't know. but Or maybe it's not different. But, um, you know, the first is he had such absolute control over her. She met him when she was very young. She was 14. She was pregnant and had a child by 15. And this is not, this is not a young woman who comes from an underprivileged community. Um, this is a, a woman who comes from a middle class community. Her mother has is highly educated, has has a graduate degree. Um, her, both of her parents were in her life; they were divorced, but in her life. So, whatever stereotypes exist in our heads around victims, you know, most victims uh, are not, you know, representative of those stereotypes. And so, Rocky really had control over her because he was so much older. He was a decade older, not uncommon in some of these relationships. He uh, really isolated her. He kept her from seeing and spending time with her friends and family, even though her family was only a mile away. Um, They would spend time with his family, but not hers. He didn't like her to have friends over. He didn't like her to wear makeup. Um, 
she at one point wanted to get a job to help with the finances um, and help clean at a motel near their house. And he uh, got just absolutely enraged with her at this suggestion and threatened to kill, took her grandfather's hunting rifle, threatened to kill her and the two kids. And so these are things that we know in hindsight, but nobody was putting them together at the time. Like his family knew that he had threatened her, but they didn't know that isolation and control were part of that scenario because they saw him all the time. And, you know, as I said, he went and got a snake. They didn't know about the snake until right before Michelle died. So um, it's just these little pieces of, of um, information that there wasn't any kind of single body uh, gathering at the time. Michelle also saw a doctor um, about two months, three months before she was killed. And no one knows what ultimately was the result of that. But it was enough that that talk, doctor gave her a prescription for antidepressants and she brought them home and Rocky saw them and threw them away and said he wasn't going to have a psycho wife on his hands. So that's the kind of thing where, you know, a healthcare provider was an intervention point that with more training could have probed a little bit. Yeah, I mean, everything that you described falls into the three categories that Evan Stark talks about in terms of intimidation, isolation, and regulation, um, which... I don't know. For me, it seems like those were very clear clues, Um, you know, and it doesn't have to be someone who's trained necessarily to be able to identify. I think just being someone who's aware of relationships um, and being a woman giving advice to other female friends, this would be something that would be a red flag for me, even if I didn't have the awareness and, and access that I do. Yes, ideally, absolutely. I think, but but I also think when you're 15, um, you have a different idea of what love is supposed to be, and you know that we have all kinds of movies and and cultural narratives that are like it's us against the world. I mean, that's a kind of guiding philosophy of a, of a lot of our entertainment. You know, I love you so much, you make me this way, or. You know, I wouldn't have to do this if you, if I didn't love you so much. It's my feelings for you that are that are causing me to act this way. I'm crazy in love. You know, these are dangerous narratives, and we we're very flippant about them in our culture. I, I like how you address that in your book, and you refer to how uh, culture pushes little girls towards love, and there are not enough stories of love's defeat. Um, that you think duty, rage, fear, and violence sometimes seem more powerful than love. And in many ways, I think the characters in your book all subscribe to this cultural belief in love and family and children needing their fathers to be healthy. And you challenge that by noting that homes are already broken when there is abuse, even if parents are together. Could you talk a little more about that? Yeah, I just... You know, it's really, I, I was reading something on my phone yesterday, so I can't remember where the, it's so weird when you're like traveling so much. Like I almost asked a woman on the train for a cup of water and then realized she wasn't a flight attendant and I was not on a plane. I was on a train. Um, but I was reading something about um, a sixth grader who had been spanked at school. And I just, I was like, how, how do we feel like, it is a very male perspective to try to solve violence with violence. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's illogical when you kind of deconstruct it. And I grew up in a home that was, my real mother died when I was, when I was eight. She was Jewish and my dad remarried. And we were, after that, we were evangelical. And so we had all that spare the rod, spoil the child. The man is the head of the household. Woman must be subservient. All of those narratives were in my upbringing. And, and yet, I don't know any other home that was, that was more broken than mine. I mean, we hated each other. My stepmother had two kids. My stepfather, I mean, my stepmother had two kids from her first marriage. My father had my brother and I. They got married, had two more kids. There's six of us. We're all like his and hers and theirs and ours and whatever. And except for the two little ones, the four, the four older of us 
despised each other. There was all kinds of physical violence between like my stepbrother and me and not just from him. I was, I was just as, as rage. I mean, I could, I could elicit that rage in a second, you know, and yet there was this narrative that no matter how terrible things were in our house, no matter what injuries existed, no matter what, you know, at one point we were investigated by the state. I spent some time in foster care. Um, it was God's will for us to be together. And that was always the overriding, you know, philosophy. That was the narrative that you were fed, but did you internalize it as well? That's a good question. You're the first interviewer I've ever actually admitted that in that kind of detail to. Um, I think I did, although I, my real mother was not that way at all. And I was always in my grandmother's life after my real mother died. So her, her mother in, in Boston, and she was a staunch feminist Jewish woman. And she would call my father up would like, and be like, I just heard from my granddaughter that you think I'm going to hell. What the hell is the matter with you? Right. So I had some semblance that what was going on in my house was abnormal and, um, and terrible, but I also felt powerless because I was a kid and we all, the four older kids were eventually kicked out in 1985. We were all kicked out on the same day. We got four suitcases lined up in the foyer and um, my step siblings had a grandmother in the area. So they just moved in with their grandmother. My real brother moved into the YMCA and finished his last year of high school at the YMCA. He's now a professor in South Carolina. And I was homeless for like five months living out of my car. And, and in some ways that experience freed me. I only say that in hindsight, because of course at the time it felt terrible, but it also felt like however stressful it was to be out there on my own it was less stressful than being at home. You know, it's interesting. Andre Debuse, um, Suzanne's brother, who we started the conversation talking about, he wrote a memoir called Townie. And one of the ways that he talks about his upbringing is that he was a real fighter. He was really violent, but his home was safe. Like that was the place where he could be, he could be safe. They didn't have any food and his father was kind of in and out of his life and his mother was a single mom. They were always broke, but he was safe there. And he and I had a conversation years ago, I mean, probably 15, 20 years ago about how for him, the whole world was this terrible, unsafe place of violence, but his home was a place where he had safety. And for me, it was just the opposite. Whatever violence existed out in the world and whatever could happen to me out there could happen to me out there felt less um portentous than what was happening to me in my own house that must have played i guess in some way a role in instigating your interest in this topic Mm. (laughs) i'm guessing i don't see the connection at all (laughs) so getting getting back to um Michelle and Rocky's relationship and and the clues that existed. Uh, one of the things that you identified, which I totally agreed with, was the moment in the videotape. Um, tell our listeners what it was that you saw that a trained professional would have identified as a problem. Oh, I'm going to take that as a compliment that you just called me a trained professional. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was they... It was amazing because Rocky used to film them all the time and he filmed them in very banal moments. Like there were some holidays and things like that, special occasions, but like mostly he was like filming the kids sitting on the couch watching TV or filming Michelle sleeping. And then he'd wake her up and film her waking up, you know, (laughs) like just these incredibly mundane moments. And before he killed them, he took all those videotapes. This was the age of the VCR. Um, put them in a bag and put them in the garage, which was separate from the house. And you get a sense that like, that's what he wanted to represent his family, those videotapes of them just living a normal life. And because there were so many, there was about 14 hours, so many hours, I, I got a sense of their personalities, all four of them. And I remember her father giving me copies of, of those videos on DVD and saying like, you know, I looked at that, I looked and looked at them. I couldn't, I didn't see anything. I couldn't find anything. And so I just thought that would be my experience as well. And it, it mostly was, I mean, it mostly was these kind of banal moments, except 
There's one moment towards the end. This was the summer before they were all killed. Michelle was behind the camera, which was rare. She didn't like to be in front of it. She didn't like to be behind it. She made that very clear over and over. And she filmed Rocky as he was walking down this this hill. Kyle was riding his bicycle around. They're in the woods camping. Rocky's wearing his bathing suit. He's got a cigarette like dangling out of his mouth. And he walks straight up to the camera and says, what, what are you doing? Or no, he, oh, sorry, no. He says, what is that? And she says, evidence. And that's it. This simple exchange, it's less than a fraction of a second. And you see his arm come up and the, and the camera cuts out immediately. And what's amazing about that, I brought my friend Don up to look at it without any context and said, tell me what you think happens next. And he flinched when he saw it and said, oh my God, he, he hit her. I mean, he hit her. It's undeniable. But what was chilling to me wasn't just that one totally split second view, but the fact that her response was so obedient. Like in a second, she had that camera off and was presumably trying to be compliant in that moment. Well, was it you or your friend who also said that his expression right before she turned off the camera was had the look of evil. Oh, yes, absolutely. It was and it happened in a millisecond. Just this this face that just turned to like a grimace. It was it was instantaneous. It was it's so I I, I still remember it today. It just was so so telling. And I think also uh in your book you also reference the the rest of the hours of the videotapes in terms of its progression towards um, disempowering Michelle, um, where she repeatedly asks not to be filmed. And then over time, she gives up her agency. Absolutely. I mean, it's right. It's so discouraging to watch because, he, you know, she was really pretty and she had a fabulous figure, you know, figure of youth. She was only 23 when she died. So he starts filming her. He gets this camera. She's probably 18 or 19, something like that. And so you see her in, you know, in the blossom of her youth. She's gorgeous. And he films her all the time in her underwear or in very scant clothing. And she asks him, like, stop it, stop it. And he laughs, right? And he'll hit her butt. Things that you might think were... Signs that they were sort of tender toward each other or endearing, but he never turns the camera off until she's asked him like again and again and again. And then at some point in the tapes and the tapes were slightly out of order. So I, you know, I, I watched them once as the, and then I tried to put them in order according to like how old the kids looked. Um, and she does stop asking. And one of the final videotapes is they're camping again and they are in a cave and they're climbing up with the kids and she's in front of him and he films her, her butt. And he says, you know, Hey kids, look at your mom's butt. Pretty nice. Huh? So he's like sexualizing her in front of the kids. And she, by, by this time, she doesn't even acknowledge that he's doing it. Like he just has complete control over, over what he's doing. And so, you know, I think if you didn't have if you if you didn't have sort of gender education, you might not recognize that. You might think that that was innocent. And there, you know, even me, I wanted to. There's a part of me that wanted to be like, "Oh, that's nothing. Come on, don't overdo it." But the fact is, she asked him to stop, and he didn't. And she asked over and over, and he never did. And she stopped asking. So, would you say that that moment was representative of her? either resignation or disassociation or both? Um, I, I don't know if I would say disassociation because I just didn't know her, but I would certainly say resignation. I think that's a good word for it. I think there are things that you just give up. There just are things that you give up and you're like, I don't want the fight. In terms of their relationship and how policy and the law impacted or failed them. 
One of the examples you gave in the book was how at some point when Michelle wanted to go back to school, to nursing school, uh, and she wasn't able to qualify for financial aid, she ended up only qualifying because she had to marry Rocky. Oh my God, what irony. This gets at the like, why didn't she just leave question, right? So such a gendered question. I was on a show right before this and I said, let's start asking why, why is he hitting her or why is he controlling her? Let's start asking that question instead. Yeah, she wasn't allowed to work outside the home, wasn't really allowed to see her family. She did miraculously graduate high school on time in spite of having two young children. I mean, it's really a miracle. And she decided, you know, Rocky was kind of in and out of work. He did a lot of construction work, which was seasonal. And so the money was always a struggle for them. And so she convinced him to let her go to school. They lived right near Montana State University, walking distance to Montana State University. Um, and so she went there. I think she was 19 when she went there. And, uh, or maybe she was eight. No, yeah, she was 19. And they said to her, well, in order to qualify for financial aid, you have to have filed two or three years of, of tax returns on your own. And you haven't done that. And she wasn't married to Rocky at the time. And she said, but that's, you know, but I've been living on my own since I was 15 or 16 with my partner. And they said, well, you, you don't qualify for financial aid. Um, now, if you marry him, then you'll qualify. So she went home. She called her mom that day and said, okay, Rocky and I are getting married next Wednesday at the Justice of the Peace. So she marries a guy that she's actively trying to leave. The system forces her to marry him. In order for her to have the financial independence to actually leave right. later for a right. longer term plan. Exactly. This is the thing about about victims leaving is that in cases like this, which are not the not the um, the the exception to the rule by any stretch, th- it takes years. You have so many things you have to put in place. You know, it's it's staggering. Another example where the system failed was when. Michelle's mother, Sally, had been assaulted by Rocky, and the assault charges against Rocky were filed in the same docket as Michelle's restraining order. But when Michelle recanted, the entire case was dismissed. Yeah, yeah. And that was that was a paperwork hiccup, to put it mildly, right? So that's the kind of thing that, like, the DA's office immediately recognized was a mistake on their on their part. Um, they shouldn't have been filed in the same docket. But, you know, the fact is when what, you know, what happened was just to give your listeners a little bit of context, um, Michelle believed that Rocky was having an affair and took the kids. This is two months before she died, took the kids to her mom's house and said, don't let him have them, whatever, you know, whatever happens if he shows up here, I'm going to go confront him about this affair. And her mother thinks and her sister, her sisters think this as well, that, the accusations of an affair were just a cover up for Michelle to have some kind of um, uh, way to leave that kept her, her, I don't know, her ego intact a little bit, you know, that people would understand and forgive a broken home if an affair was involved. It's like an, one of the few acceptable reasons to leave unless you're evangelical, I guess. But anyway, <laughs> um, so she went home to confront Rocky and Rocky within an hour showed up at her mom's house and broke in. You know, her mom, Sally, saw Rocky's car pull up, locked all the doors. Rocky punched through a back window, unlocked the door, you know, injured his own hand. He was bleed, left blood everywhere, hit Michelle's sister, Melanie, who was six months pregnant at the time, and took his daughter, Christy, who was seven, and just slung her over his shoulder and and walked out of the house. And so Sally, Michelle's mom, called the police and the police came and said, what do you want us to charge him with? It's his own daughter. We can't do anything, you know. And Sally was like, "Are you kidding me? I mean, this is your job." I talked to a detective in Montana just I don't know a year or two ago and said, "What could he have been charged with?" Because he was charged with criminal mischief. And then when Michelle recanted and the dockets were, you know, the charges were in the same docket, they threw it out. So already he was only facing criminal mischief. And this. Um, this detective said, oh, certainly breaking and entering is felony assault. Like he listed just a whole bunch of things that could have been charged. And, you know, in a sense, it was great because it showed some progress. You know, this was the guy I was talking to was head. He was head detective of the major crimes unit for the entire state. So 
you know, that's progress. So how do you account for the difference in the conversation a year or two ago and the actual charges that were, you know, alleged against yeah. him? What was, was there just a training gap or? Yeah. So um, after Michelle's death, about a year after Michelle's death, Sally read in the newspaper that Montana was forming something called a fatality review team. And fatality review teams exist in, in most states across the country. And there's even um, countries around the world that have fatality review teams that look specifically at domestic violence homicides. They take on maybe, you know, one or two, three cases a year. And they do a whole deep dive timeline of a case and try to figure out where changes can be made, whether those changes are, are in law enforcement or they're in the judiciary or they're, you know, in, in education or, you know, some other, some other avenue. And so um, Michelle's case ended up being the first case that the fatality review team took on. Now they don't, when they file the report with their state legislator, they don't actually connect their recommendations to specific cases. So they look at like, you know, maybe four four or five cases before they make their list of recommendations. And they do that, you know, for privacy and that kind of thing. But some of the things that would not happen in Montana, Montana today as a result of, of Michelle's case and some of the other earlier ones are, for example, that would never be the police response. What do you want us to charge him with? Never. Um, they would have the, the city of Billings now has a dedicated domestic violence police officer who calls with every, with every domestic violence call that his own car gets this officer calls, tries to call within 24 hours and say, hi, I'm, her name is Katie Nash. Hi, I'm, you know, in Billings, I'm officer Katie Nash. I'm, I'm the DV person here on the police force. So that's another thing, right? Um, the other thing is Rocky bailed out almost immediately. I mean, he was arrested. He called his parents, promised them he wouldn't, you know, do anything that he was a father who had a right to his kids and, you know, making all these promises. And they, they bailed him out, and by the time Michelle heard that he, that they were bailing him out, he was already out. Um, and so she went and it recanted as a form of solidarity. That would not happen today. Uh, someone who's arrested for domestic violence is not allowed to see a judge until after lunch. Tiny little change. But just those few hours give victim advocates or this police officer enough time to get to a victim and, and try to do a risk assessment and try to do some safety planning. Maybe they change the locks. Maybe they put an abuser on GPS. Maybe they um, bring them to shelter. There's all kinds of of interventions they could have. So um, it wouldn't happen today, hopefully. So this gap that you identified, it's it's part of a larger systemic gap in terms of prosecutions. And you wrote this week in a New York Times op-ed about the double standard with regard to how prosecutors pursue murder cases without a victim, but often refuse to do so in domestic violence cases. Can you tell us about the Crawford v. Washington Supreme Court case and its impact on DV prosecutions? Yeah, so let me see if I can unpack this a little bit. Um, so around the mid to late 80s, there started to be a movement that began in San Diego called Evidence-Based Prosecution for Domestic Violence Cases. And it was a way to keep victims off the stand so that they would not be, um, they would not, they, because they feared retaliation from their, from their abusers. And so prosecutors began to use things like 911 calls or, or victim affidavits that were filed at police stations, you know, police reports witness statements, uh, you know, there weren't social, there wasn't social media at the time, but they can use social media posts and things like that. Now that gained pretty good momentum in certain parts of the country, like throughout the late eighties into the nineties. And then, um, a case called Crawford v. Washington came. And what Crawford said was that, and it was the majority opinion was written by Scalia and he, he was a real constitutionalist. I mean, he really, he, he sort of saw the Constitution in black and white terms, and he said, um, according to the Constitution, the Sixth Amendment, uh, those who are accused have a right to face their accuser in court. It's a constitutionally protected right. And for domestic violence victims, that can be incredibly dangerous. And um, so the Supreme Court ruled in, under Crawford that these accusers had had a right unless a 
victim was unable to testify, like if she was sick or something like that. Um, and so <laughs> there's, I don't want to get too much in the weeds on the case, but there are exceptions that can be made. So prosecutors um, can sometimes use 911 tapes and sometimes not. It depends on what a dispatcher says to a victim. But affidavits are pretty much never allowed anymore. Victim, sta- uh, sorry, which means victim statements. Witness witness statements are allowed if a witness can be called. So if a family member or a neighbor, you know, is aware of that violence and makes a statement, as long as they can come take the stand, that statement will be allowed. So this is this is hamstrung some prosecutors. If you are a prosecutor who is already inclined to not prosecute domestic violence. Um, when it, you know, or maybe you're a prosecutor who doesn't understand the psychology around domestic violence, you may be like, mm, you yeah, know, I'm just going to let this one go. And after that New York Times piece came out, I had a whole bunch of prosecutors just like attack me on Twitter. It was so unnerving. Like I'm, I'm such a nice, happy person in real life. I'm like, stop hitting me on Twitter, you know? And they would say, oh, you've never, you know, you've never been to a, a arraignment court where the majority of cases are, you know, couples who slap cell phones out of each other's hands. And, you know, I understand that that is not seen as life-threatening. I understand why somebody would want to minimize that. And it and it's true that some of those cases are just a sort of couple being tit for tat. But I think what's lost in a lot of the cases by by some of the prosecutors who are kind of, you know, Twitter yelling, is that in the Supreme Court, um, there was a case just in 2017, I think it was, called Voisin, Voisin v. Washington, um, where the Supreme Court looked at intent behind behavior and domestic violence. So, for example, let's say somebody takes a plate and throws it against the wall and a shard of the plate comes off and hits you in the eye. Can that person be... Can the intent behind that be considered violent intent and then that person charged with domestic violence and then that person have his or her guns taken away? Like that's it's it was really a gun case. But the Supreme Court ruled that, in fact, intent matters, that they're not just throwing a plate because they don't like the design of those plates. Right. Or for whatever reason, you know, playing Frisbee in the living room, they're throwing a plate to send a message right to a victim. So same thing if you if you walk out of a door in a huff and that door slams on on your victim behind you and breaks her nose there's intent there was intent behind the, the walking out the door that way behind slamming that door in her face. So it wasn't an accident. So I understood that the prosecutors were frustrated or that they are frustrated with some of these what they w- would consider minor acts of domestic violence but they have to try to understand the fact that there is intent and there's context to those actions that are bigger than that one single incident. That was like a mouthful of an answer, but. (laughs) In in summary, your opinion piece ends with a statement that ultimately the reluctance to prosecute these cases is um, rests in the misogyny and sexism that, runs rampant in our culture. You know, it's it's a it's a quote by Casey Gwynn, who was the was the prosecutor who really put evidence based prosecution on the map for domestic violence victims in San Diego. And um, it's a quote I've heard him say to other people. And he said it to me. And it's just it's incredibly powerful. And I think that's absolutely right. And it gets at sort of where we started this conversation with why why isn't domestic violence talked about? And it it really is like, because we're not prioritizing women's lives. You know, Hillary Clinton said 25 years ago that women's rights are human rights. And we still are yelling that message, you know, two and a half decades later. And so it's, it's frustrating to me, but it also... When I think about, you know, I don't know if you know the scholar Ibram Kendi. He's really amazing. He wrote Stamped from the Beginning. And, you know, his office is just um, one floor down from mine at American University. I'm always like looking for him just so I can get like a whiff of his greatness. 
Um, that sounds actually super creepy, but not, you know. Um, anyway, he posted something on Twitter a couple of months ago that was just really, I don't know, this was sort of moving for me, I guess, in a way. He said, you know, in the, in the recent history of this country, meaning sort of post-colonization, right? Post-pilgrims landing at Plymouth Rock or whatever, we enslaved people of color for 350 odd years. And it's only been in the last 60 that they've not been in. Well, I mean, yeah, he's talking post-civil rights. So only been in the last 60 that the civil rights movement has, that we have claimed that, that people of color have freedom in this country equal to, to, you know, white people. And, I thought about that from the perspective of domestic violence. And I was like, you know what? For centuries in this country, we believed it was a man's right to hit his, his spouse and his wife. And in fact, it wasn't federal law to not hit your wife until 1984, two decades after the civil rights movement. That's shocking. But when you think about what we've done since 1984, like that actually to me is a hopeful message. Like we actually have done a lot, even with like batterers intervention, I think, okay, we started building shelters in the seventies and it wasn't until the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years that we realized shelter is a necessary sometimes, but also just a very disruptive response to any, to anyone's life. Right. And in some cases, I mean, I, I tend to look at things through a kind of literary lens of symbolism. So I'm, I'm like, shelter is cu- cutting off of the world, which in some ways is a parallel to domestic violence and how we've treated that. But when I look at the fact that for 40 years, we thought shelter was an adequate response. And for 10, we've realized that we need to do more. I think batterer's intervention is really in its infancy. And, and still, they're sort of still in that the beginning phases where it's like, we're not sure what's working. We're going to try this. We're going to try that. And I think that's where our efforts to some extent need to be with the origins of violence. Like, let's try to stop violence. Getting back to what you were saying in terms of our reluctance as a society to even look at this problem. um, You have a quote where Jackie Campbell talks to, I forgot who Annie is, but... (laughs) Oh, Annie is a, was a student of hers who was killed, knifed to death. She, she's talking to, death. to Annie, and she says, if I had been smart enough to ask or follow up the follow-up questions to press a little harder, to not be afraid to pry, my response to that, I was thinking, was maybe it's not that professionals don't know what to ask, but they're afraid to ask because then they, they're going to hear answers that they don't have an adequate response to. And one of the things that when you were talking about Stamp from the beginning is I think the premise around racism is that it's less about, let me correct me if I'm wrong in terms of my interpretation, but it's less about behavior and access to empathy, for example, that racism is um, reliant on, but the fact that white privilege is reinforced through policy. And so the only way to eliminate racism is to change policy, regardless of whether or not society is ready for it. And similarly, I think if we apply that to gender justice and gender equality, as a society, we're not ready or willing to address male privilege and give it up. And so if that's the case, it seems like things like the ERA, Equal Rights Amendment, just needs to go forward and force that equality so that we have access because people are not going to be willing to give up their privilege. Yeah, I know. You know, I think that that is how I interpret it as well. And I think in some ways, um, I think that the paradox is that policy follows social progress or social movements and not the other way around. And that's where we fail sometimes that our policy is not establishing the social progress. I mean, we're talking about sort of like deeply philosophical things right now, but I think, I think that's part of the problem is that we, those of us who are in this society and have an awareness want the policy to change, but the policymakers are so unaware. Batter intervention programs. A lot of what you cover in the middle section of your book as to why people abuse and commit harm addresses interventions after the fact. And since you mentioned prevention, 
um, I think I'd like you to comment on what can we do as a society to actually help shape people who are not going to abuse rather than help reform them after they've already adopted certain behaviors and mindsets that make them more inclined to abuse. You know, there's a great documentary that probably many of your listeners know. You know what I'm saying? You're nodding there's at me two, right now. Probably. There's two, oh, there's two. <laughs> Wait, which one are, which ones the are you? The Mask You Live In? Yes, The Mask You Live In. And then there's another one I just saw. Um, we I spoke with and interviewed um, Richie Rosita, the CNN documentary, The Feminist in Cell Block, Why? Oh, I don't know that one. Yeah. I don't know about that one. So he is a former inmate, and he actually teaches bell hooks to inmates. Oh. And it addresses the question of interventions yeah. because his premise, and I agree with him, is that we need to decolonize our minds, you know, and dismantle patriarchy and the systems that actually reinforce these norms that you talk about so aptly in your book. Um, that police people's behaviors and how they see relationships, et cetera, that are very harmful to them. And so if we can give people, both men and women, the consciousness and the tools to understand the ways in which they've been shaped, or as you say in this book, how men have been coerced into it, then they can release themselves from the the shackles of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I just think so much of it is gender education. Yeah, I live in Washington, D.C., totally progressive, you know, really uh, left-leaning area. I mean, I I think we voted 96% for Hillary Clinton, like more than San Francisco, which I'm very proud of. Um, And yet I went on this field trip with my daughter. We saw Shakespeare play with her when she was in fourth grade. And um, the actors came out afterwards and the theater, you know, the people who were, it was at the Shakespeare theater, the people who were kind of running the field trip came out. It was for a bunch of schools in the DC area. And they asked the kids about um, King Lancelot and whether or not he should have, of, I guess, sorry, King Arthur and whether or not he should have killed Lancelot, should he have avenged, you know, the affair. And the kids, the, the answer ran completely, this is fourth graders, completely along gendered lines. The boys all said, yes, kill him, kill him. And the girls were just silent, silent. And then they asked about Guinevere's feelings. And I just sat there thinking, do they think that boys and men don't have feelings? Why are they not asking about King Arthur's feelings or, or Lancelot's feelings, you know? I think part of it is is that we have to create a world in which young men and young boys can inhabit their full range of human emotion and where tears are not seen as weakness. I have so many, so, you know, I teach at a university, so I have students come in crying all the time. Uh, sometimes they're legitimate tears and sometimes not. I'm pretty good at telling the difference, actually. But to a one, every single one of them apologized for their tears. Every single one. I had a girl last semester whose mother was dying. She has since died. And she starts to cry and apologizes. Why? Why is she apologizing for that? To me, that is a sign of strength. Her tears are aligned with her feelings. And, and I think that is a sign of emotional health. I would be concerned about her if she wasn't crying about that. And yet she's apologizing. That is a message that needs to change, I think. Well, I think it speaks to our overall topic in general about intimate partner violence, that women, we we are always managing other people's comfort level. And if we're crying, then we're putting other people in this, you know, discomfort, basically. And, and similarly, in, intimate partner violence as a subject puts people in it outside their comfort zone. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of know-it-alls out there. I can't tell you how many, like, cab drivers or Uber drivers I'm driving around with. I'm going to, like, one book event after another. And they start telling me about domestic violence. What's your? They say, what's your book about? And I say domestic violence. And they say, oh, I know about that. Blah, 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 blah. And then they repeat every myth that I've spent 10 years dismantling in this book. And, like, so many of them. Even And I'm not even talking about necessarily men only here men and women, so many of them um, are not, they think they know. And they're telling me and they're, they're mansplaining to me. (laughs) You know, it happened twice yesterday. 
So what are your thoughts then about whether someone who's abusive can change then? You, you say that there's a need for education around gender, etc. But what about someone who's engaged in particular types of behavior already that are harmful? Is that is there a way to assess? And what do you recommend in terms of policy to address that? I mean, I, I'm a humanist. I have to believe that we can change. Otherwise, what are we doing? What are we even talking for if people can't change? We always say it takes victims seven or eight times to leave. I, that's a stat that I have some, I take some issue with because it suggests that leaving is like a, they walked out the door and then they walked back in the door and that's not really what leaving looks like. But, um, but why do we have the expectation on violent people that after one course of batterer's intervention, they will change? Like these are hard, difficult, delicate matters. And yes, of course, I, I believe they can change. I mean, I was a pretty violent teenager in certain ways. I was so angry. And I don't, I don't even raise my voice anymore, ever, ever. I had, you know, my daughter's birthday was that last weekend. We had a sleepover with six girls. And my daughter told me the next day, all six of my friends think you're the coolest parent. And I was like, well, damn straight I am. But like, you know, I've heard some of the way, some of the ways that other parents talk to their kids. And I'm like, that's not okay. I just think that is not okay. You got a model for them. Someone who is in control of your, you know, and aware of how you're moving through space. Um, I think we need to make sure that in terms of policy, what we're, what we're doing with batterers is geared toward battering and not toward, I don't know, anger management or couples counseling or whatever, you know, those are not the same psychology. I mean, that's one thing I would do. It's, it's not, that's not policy, but it is, you know, judiciary. And I think we need we need to make sure that gender education is in our schools. I talked to a, a professor yesterday who told me that um, somewhere in Connecticut, they just cut their women's studies program. And what a mistake that is. By gender education, I'm guessing you mean like sociology and the construction of gender yes. as a yeah. identity. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. feminism, basically. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I agree. Yeah. So in the meantime, while we're doing that, you also recommended in your book uh, as a policy suggestion something called the Survivor Resilience Fund. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. You know, you write a book and then it takes like a year to come out, and <laughs> you forget these little things. Yes, that was started by this incredible woman named Peg Haxelow in Washington, D.C., um, who worked for many years in transitional housing. And um, it's it's really what she found in her research was that a lot of times victims can uh, afford to, to raise their children. They have the financial means. They have the community support. They just have like one financial hurdle they have to get past. Like maybe they don't have enough for first month's rent and security deposit, or maybe their abuser has racked up tons of credit card debt in their name. And so the Survivor Resilience Fund is exactly that. It is like a way to give a chunk of money to get them over that hump. And I just think it's so smart. You know, I had in DC, I had someone, a woman named Natalia Otero, who started a program called DC Safe, say to me that when they started giving, um, they started giving sort of 24 to 48 hour packages to women in need. Like somebody would call the police and the police would come and say, you need to get to shelter. This is a really volatile, dangerous situation. And the woman would say, you know, she'd be locked out of the house barefoot, just holding her kid. And she'd say, I don't have my credit cards. I don't have any diapers on me. I don't have any, you know, everything's in the house. He's in there with a gun or whatever the situation is. And um, DC safe will give them, they'll give them diapers. They'll give them, they have like, you know, a closet where they keep like a backpack of supplies, just, you know, a hundred dollar grocery card or whatever they need. And she said, you know, just doing that little tiny thing, which does not cost a lot of money, puts them in a place where they, because their immediate needs are net met, they can think better for the long term. I just think things like this are so smart, these seemingly small initiatives. Well, this brings us to the end of our conversation. I ask every guest the Engendered Questionnaire, which I've adapted from Inside the Actor's Studios Questionnaire. The first question is, 
What is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Wow. The answer really is society is at stake. I just find that unsatisfying as an answer because it's so heady and because people can't wrap their minds around it. So I guess I would say that here's what's at stake. Like, insert your own image here, but a beautiful 23-year-old girl named Michelle Monson Mosier and her seven-year-old daughter, Christy, and her six-year-old son, Kyle. That's what's at stake. What gives you hope? The fact that we're having this conversation. The fact that 10 years ago, I started researching domestic violence, knew immediately I wanted it to be a book and thought, no one's going to read a book about domestic violence. No one's interested in domestic violence. And I am thrilled to be proven wrong. (laughs) And finally, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence? Listening. We can do more listening. Thank you so much, Rachel. I loved this conversation. It's been such a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.